Welcome to Altamar. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Peter Schechter, and with me is my co-host, Muni Jensen, and we'll captain this boat for you for the next half hour or so. Join us, and remember to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. So Russia has not left our front pages for a single day since 2016, and it's left me feeling that there is no one Russia story, but a multiplicity of Russia stories. David Brooks had a piece in the New York Times which just in which he named Putin as the most influential man uh, on earth today. And these intersecting stories go from the Skirpal poisoning in London to the diplomatic expulsions that have happened in the United States and the European Union uh, to Russia's inc- increasingly deadly particular participation in the Syrian civil war, the hacking of the U.S. electric grid, Moscow's threats of a nuclear arms race, an increasingly belligerent Russia, and finally to recent reports that uh, President Trump invited Putin to the White House, notwithstanding all of the rumors that swirl that Russia interfered uh, illegally in the elections in the United States. So none of this storyline is really new or surprising. We remember as far back as the late 1990s, and analysts have repeatedly told us that Russia wants more than anything to become a global power and reestablish itself as a global power again, that they want a seat at the table, and that part of their national identity is this whole great power status. And Putin has really played on that and is really what has kept him in power for, for, for quite a long time. So what we've decided today, Peter, is that we're going to focus on one of the storylines because Russia is a many storied country and it is election meddling and it goes far beyond the U.S. presidential election and we've heard a lot about that, but it's more and more countries and a lot more facets to this issue. And so we'll look at the new hybrid warfare by Russia. That's a little newer than the traditional and where and how it's been implemented and where it will be or is suspected to be uh, implemented in the coming months and it's uh, the new the Kremlin's new weapon of choice so what is a hybrid war so basically everything except tanks and guns it's diplomacy it's eco- it's economic it's political and cultural it's certainly uh, cyber warfare is also included there and uh, one of the examples is the banned decision the decision to ban the screening of the death of Stalin which is a satire uh, by Armando Yanucci and that kind of humor even about politics from 60 years ago, could not be tolerated in Russia. But one thing we're also going to do, because Mooney and I were talking about this, which is we're not just going to buy what's on the front pages hook, line, and sinker. We're also going to ask some questions about is Russia getting just far too much credit here? Is the Kremlin's election meddling and its cultural outreaches, uh, are, are they more just haphazard uh, tactical implementations, or does this respond to a profound strategy? And are we doing the Kremlin a favor and ourselves a disservice by framing it as this really profound strategy? So we'll be joined in a bit by Andrew Weiss, one of the world's leading scholars on Russia and Eurasia. He is at currently at the Carnegie Endowment in here in Washington, and he's also at Albright Stonebridge. He's a smart witty, very knowledgeable and well-informed expert on Russia. 
So I was having lunch with this Egyptian friend of mine, a really smart guy who was visiting the U.S. of a after a bunch of years that he hasn't been here. And you know, one of the first things he said to me over the lunch table was, "He goes, wait, wait a second. Is is this Russia obsession that's going on right now just not a bit exaggerated? After all, weren't they always?" doing things like these. So what exactly is Russia doing? And, you know, I think there's a few theories. And there's one theory that says Russia is executing against a really dastardly sinister plan. I mean, that they're executing with precision. I'm exaggerating on the word dastardly. But, you know, the point of this is that the theory is that the Russians have sophisticated, explicit objectives in the countries that they're targeting. So in the U.S., they were explicitly targeting people so that they could get Donald Trump uh, elected or at the or at the very least do incredible damage to Hillary Clinton. In the UK, the specific objective was to get a yes vote for Brexit. And in France, it was the uh, Le Pen victory. And in Germany, it was to weaken Merkel after uh, what was going to be an inevitable CDU victory, but to make that victory as small as possible. And in Spain, it was... Uh, for a yes vote for Catalan uh, independence. And, you know, the specificity has a motive, uh, the theorists would say, and that motive is to decrease uh, attention to all of Russia's negative actions on the geopolitical stage. So that way we are talking about Russia uh, in Catalonia and not Russia in Syria. We are talking about Russia and its actions in Germany and not talking about the invasion in Crimea, Crimea or the harassment of Georgia or the infiltration of uh, Ukraine. And sometimes you will get uh, uh, party leaders like Le Pen in France or the Five Star or Lega uh, parties in Italy, um, and you'll get friendly governments uh, right in the midst of uh, NATO countries. And other times you will elect parties that allow you to sow doubt and chaos in the West. That's what um, Russia's intervention in Mexico right now is all about. And they're trying to uh, create a support for the campaign of the leftist nationalist candidate Andres Manuel López Obrador. Or that's what they did in Catalonia to create havoc in NATO countries. Well, this sounds very overarching and scary, but I don't think everybody buys into that idea that Russia is so precisely and surgically implementing a specific long-term plan. Some argue that there's a lot of snake oil in this notion of this Russia grand plan. And maybe what happens, Peter, is that they're not as sophisticated as they're made out to be. They just want to appear sophisticated and their objective more than, you know, political determinism is to create division, to create tension and to create an atmosphere of mistrust. That's been historically with the role of Russia in the world stage and currently very much blurring the lines between whatever is true and not. And many of these very knowledgeable Russia specialists like Masha Gessen and our previous guest and a previous podcast, Mark Galeotti, suggest that this is the writing of uh, the overriding objective, it's disruption. So uh, they have in the U.S., and we know this, and our guest has spoken and written about this a lot, Jill Stein campaign, how that was disruptive to the Hillary Clinton camp, um, the how they contributed to 
bolstering Bernie Sanders and all of the cyber warfare that's been uh, taking place, not just in the U.S., but in France and Germany. And again, Andrew Weiss argues that the overarching goal is to hollow out the U.S.-led Western liberal international order. It does, it does seem like there's a um, you know, very much zero-sum game here. It's not so much about Russia get acquiring you know, strategic successes, but it's about making sure that the West has strategic failures. And um, you know, I certainly don't know if that makes Putin the most influential man in the world today, but it, it certainly has gotten him on every front page uh, in every newspaper around the world. So I think to put it into perspective, Russia is in an economic recession right now. It's been subjected to sanctions for a very long time. Uh, even though uh, Putin was just reelected with an overwhelming majority, there is still some dissent inside. So it's uh, outside, its external image is a lot stronger than what he is inside. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I think some of our listeners may not be old enough to remember, but the Soviet propaganda and misinformation campaigns are certainly not new. They were a huge issue during the Cold War. I mean, I, I uh, you know, was at the, I'm old enough to have been at the border of, between Austria and the People's Republic of Czechoslovakia, and I remember the, I'd never seen authoritarian repression uh, like I had seen at the border. You know, my car was stopped, my car trunk was opened, and there were, I had a bunch of magazines there. I mean, magazines th that were, Time magazine. I mean, they weren't they weren't magazines that anybody would call subversive, and yet all of my magazines were were uh, were confiscated. You know, so and I, I think you know if you look at then, you know, you ask yourself what's the difference now, and I think the difference now is that the West is far more vulnerable because while the goals and objectives haven't changed very much, the tools and methods have changed a lot, and the biggest factor is now that Russia has this new capacity, this new toolkit, uh, which is called how to infiltrate social media, and, you know, with the Russian bots and paid trolls and fake accounts and promoted posts. Uh, all this creates a easily propagated story that has really created a capacity to morph Russian state media into much more than that. You know, So you have obviously the more traditional things that are happening and you're seeing that, for example, if you look at what's at Russia, what's Russia is doing in Mexico, which I mentioned before, you have a much more traditional outreach in which they're using RT, which is Russian television, uh, in Spanish, in Espanol, uh, to try to promote their views. But they're also then also using social media to promote a new version of events that are going on in Mexico. The, uh, my question is, we are sitting here wondering how successful they are today. But looking back at their objectives, how successful have they been at disrupting? Very. How successful have they been at really making a difference in Western uh, liberal ideology? Not so much. And if you look at the news coverage in the past two years, it seems like Putin has given, you know, has, has been everywhere, as you mentioned, in every single um, headline all over the world. And they're involved in every controversy, every war, every conflict, willing to jump in in every election. Um, is that giving Russia the 
the great power status or what Russia has become is the giant disruptor. And it is a lot of chaos. But, well, they did, if, if it's true that they influenced the U.S. election, which seems more and more uh, valid, then they did influence it. But did they want Donald Trump in power? Do they want Lopez Obrador in power in Mexico or do they just want to create havoc? I think these are all questions that have um, fundamental a fundamental uh, impact on how we respond to a lot of the Russia problems, but I don't know that we'll ever be able to really have an answer because uh, Putin and Russia is not governed by a, a system that has the capacity to permeate information uh, about where they're going. And I think, you know, one of the great problems that we have to ask ourselves, Mooney, is how much we in the West, since we can't, we can't really affect what is happening in Russia, and we'll probably never find out exactly what they're thinking, the, we, the question that we have to ask is whether we in the West have some blame here, whether, you know, lax laws in the United States and the United Kingdom, you know, that allow for purchases, uh, in particularly in real estate and property, to become money laundering vehicles for uh, the oligarchs around Putin. I, I, there, there is no doubt that huge amounts of money are being laundered through uh, offshore companies uh, that belong to the offshore banks that belong to the United Kingdom, or even if you, any trip to Miami, you see suddenly this onslaught of uh, Russian speakers. And so, you know, I think that that, that and you have the example of, of the former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt takes a job with the board of Russia's ga gas company. So we're creating the giant, do you think? Well, I think that there's, I think that we have to look at ourselves to also be able to shut down the permeability of our system or at least to uh, to make it a somewhat more difficult you know i think in in the wild west that social that is the social media platforms um, you know the sad but dawning truth here is that these new technologies have actually not necessarily brought us closer. World is a, a, a smaller, the global village, and all that stuff. And to a large extent, they've torn us apart. You know, Silicon Valley tech firms surely didn't envision themselves to become so easily permeable to attack and to be into being co-opted. Now we're seeing the revelations about Facebook as just one example. Um, about these companies being so easily um, infiltrated in, in some sense. So I, I, I think that there is a lot that we in the West have got to do. And, uh, you know, my own view is that European regulators have this right. They, they are going to be the first to regulate uh, these social platforms. And uh, I have no doubt that we in America uh, are going to come next. Uh, but let's, if you listen to the Dutch uh, uh, member of the European Parliament, Mariette Schalke, and listen to her talk about you know, the new tech and media landscape and the implications for liberal democracy and the role that government needs to take on in order to make sure that these uh, platforms aren't infiltrated. Let's take a listen. Democratic principles are being eroded and even replaced with profit models and authoritarian governance. The digital revolution is leading to a redistribution of power that is not matched with the redistribution of accountability and oversight. 
While the role of governments is changing, global technology companies are now the ones confronted with challenges that traditionally landed exclusively on the desks of diplomats and politicians. Global technology companies are the new sovereigns, but they're designed and engineered to maximize profit, not democracy. Social media platforms have become political arenas and catalysts for junk news sprawling. They're also the only place where most young people see news. Without norms governing the global digital networked ecosystem, the legal vacuums that companies continue to operate in will grow wider and deeper. So beyond the regulatory framework and the problem of social media, going back to the bottom of this, what does Russia want and what is the impact of whatever intention Russia has with regard to the West? And to discuss some of these questions, we'll bring in our guest, Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, is one of the world's premier experts on Russia. And now Carnegie has the Moscow Center in Russia, one of the leading independent voices on these issues. Uh, Andrew's been concentrated on Russia for much of his life, and prior to joining Carnegie, he was director of the Rand Corporation Center for Russia and Eurasia, and as well as the executive director of the Rand Business Leaders Forum. His career has spanned both the public and private sector. He's previously served as director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian affairs on the National Security Council, as well as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. As a policy assistant to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy during the administrations of Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. And he's also a colleague at Albright Stonebridge Group. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much. Really good to be here. We will start with an obvious question and asking you where you stand on the central debate, whether there was or was not Russian election meddling in the U.S. in the recent U.S. election. Are we giving Moscow too much credit? Oh, that's an easy one. No, I think there's no doubt that there was an unprecedented and really brazen conspicuous level of Russian interference in the 2016 election. I think the tricky parts are the ones that fall under the scope of Robert Mueller's investigation. You know, how much, if at all, was the Trump campaign in touch with uh, Russian interlocutors who somehow were connected to that interference effort? Um, and, you know, were any laws broken in, in the process? Um, the other thing which, you know, people I think can't really answer is, you know, did this matter? You know, we obviously had a sort of American political nervous breakdown unfolding that Donald Trump was the beneficiary of. Russia didn't create Donald Trump, but it certainly tried to capitalize on cleavages inside American society and to kind of aggravate the, the intense polarization that we've seen in recent years. Hey, Andrew, could I, could I just follow up on that? You know, we, we talk not only about America's election, but we talk about Russia's meddling in Spain during the Catalonia vote, in France for Le Pen, in Germany for the alternative for Deutschland. Uh, you know, it's, it's in, in Italy just recently for the five-star movement. And, and so, you know, my, I guess my question is, is this a, a, a sophisticated execution against a a plan that was mapped out uh, with, you know, clear steps along the way, or or is this just much more haphazard? And is the result here, rather than Russia having risen to great power status, have they actually just risen to great problem status? That they're just the West's problem, as opposed to really strategically benefiting from all of this. 
No, that's a great question. I think the short answer is yes, yes. Um, you know, on the one <laughs> hand, I think you know, and I, I think there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that the Russians are just masterful at doing things tactically and improvising, spotting opportunities, and then capitalizing on them. Um, on the other hand, I think it's important to kind of step back, and the the way I would sort of scope this is I'd say that starting around 2011, 2012, when we had the street demonstrations on the streets of Moscow and other major Russian cities, there was a real sense at the highest levels of the Russian government that the United States was trying to promote regime change. And that was really an existential question for Putin himself. And so he decided, starting in 2012, to push back. And the tools that he had to do that were largely asymmetrical because he's not as rich as the United States, his military isn't as strong, his intelligence capabilities are not as strong. And so what he was doing was on a really systematic and sustained basis looking for a set of opportunities and openings and weak points inside the United States, inside the broader Western community. And as that campaign sort of gained momentum, and we've had any number of events, whether it's the um, the arrival of Edward Snowden in Russia in summer 2013, the uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2014. There have been these events that have sort of either happened, not necessarily because Russia created them, but where Russia saw opportunities to push that agenda forward. Um, more broadly, we've seen an effort to kind of transform the international order, which was created after 1989, that Russia feels fundamentally disadvantages it and kind of makes Russia a subordinate player to a US-led world. And so for, for much of the last, I'd say, uh, starting in 2014, 2015, much of what was animating the Russian effort was how do we chip away at US leadership? How do we chip away at this international system and make the world more multipolar? That's been a goal of Russian policy since the mid-1990s. And then, you know, thanks to the arrival of this populist moment that you're describing across Europe, the populist eruption inside the United States that Donald Trump was the chief beneficiary of, they've seen ways to capitalize on that and basically make the West more dysfunctional, make the US more discredited around the world and kind of bring down an international system that they find fundamentally distasteful. So Russia has been accused of meddling in most current international affairs. And as you mentioned, this has been an objective. But is the, is the real motivation a motivation of uh, disruption for domestic political value for Putin? Or is there something more obscure and predictable that we're missing on, in this story? Yeah, no, it's great you brought that up. So apart from that sort of broader international construct that I was just sketching out, you know, fear about regime change, desire to kind of cut the U.S. down to size, desire to change the international system, there is a very fundamental domestic political uh, construct or strategy that lies behind all of this. Vladimir Putin's popularity starting in two, the early 2000s was largely predicated on the rapid jump in living standards and in incomes and wealth that really washed across Russian society as a whole. At some point, starting probably around 2007, 2008, with the global international financial crisis, that model of kind of basically surfing on the back of a huge run-up in global commodities and energy prices came to an end. And Russian growth really started to taper off a while ago, going on about a decade ago. So what Putin needed was a kind of new mode of justifying his rule 
and rallying and mobilizing popular support. And the easiest way to do that, and he's done this at various stages of, of, his, of his presidency, is to say Russia is basically a besieged fortress beset by external enemies, and the United States is enemy number one. So the more that he can kind of say and portray to the Russian people, see, they're out to get us, see, they want to bring us back to our low point in the 1990s, and say completely fanciful things like, see, they want to take away our natural resource uh, wealth and you know basically colonize Russia, the more he can kind of keep pushing those themes, the stronger his legitimacy and popularity at home. Can I, can I just take you back for a second to this, to this hybrid warfare that we've been talking about a little bit, you know, elections, but it's also the diplomacy and culture. You, you, you've talked a little bit about those other things. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what, what the West's response ought to be. You, you've written a lot that this isn't new. And, uh, you know, what, what is different from what the actions of the West to counter Russian uh, disinformation and propaganda, et cetera, et cetera, in their heyday? And, and what, what is it that we ought to be doing? How do we, what, do we, what do we need to change in our response today? in terms of uh, being able to face this new hybrid warfare threat? So it's a, it's a tall order. And at a time when Donald Trump has you know, really alienated the United States from several key European partners and you know, basically treated NATO and our European allies as deadbeats who you know, don't pull their weight, um, you know, the first thing that we, we need to be is united. And our efforts you know, often you know, focus on nitty-gritty about building resilience at home and hardening our societies so that they're less vulnerable to external interference. In the case of um, uh, the you know, tactics that had been new, the biggest one that is new is in the past, things that were done for espionage purposes, such as stealing information in cyberspace, you know, hacking of a database or some breaking into someone's email server. In the past, that kind of information was used to help figure out strategies for covert action or to just kind of better understand what was going on in a foreign society. The breakthrough in 2016 during our election was where the Russians basically used offensive cyber techniques and combined them with information operations techniques. And so you have the break-in at the DNC, something that seems perfectly understandable for espionage reasons, but then handing over en toto the entire amount of information, the terabytes of information that were collected to uh, uh, cut out WikiLeaks, which then publicized them for a political purpose to you know, harm Hillary Clinton's candidacy for president. So that was a real breakthrough and something we, we've seen elements of in the past several years, whether it was in the pressure tactics Russia applied against Ukraine or against its Baltic neighbors or against Georgia at various stages. But to do it against the United States was a huge breakthrough, both in terms of Russian tradecraft and in terms of just the level of interference that Russia was willing to engage in. And then part of what was interesting, and this you know, is consistent, is not inconsistent with Soviet-era tradecraft and practice going back to the 60s and 70s, was a level of shamelessness, where basically Russia would pursue these active measures, you know, information operations, propaganda, uh, spreading lies or just trying to hurt people's reputations, um, and then being completely unembarrassed when when they were accused of being responsible. So there's this amazing moment in 2016 when a lot of people, I think, thought what the Russians were doing wasn't working and that you know Hillary Clinton's candidacy was just a juggernaut and unstoppable. Where you know Putin was asked questions in public fora like, 
you know, what do you make of this hacking and WikiLeaks or, you know, the leaks of John Podesta's emails and things like that? And he had this kind of, I know that you know that I know that you know I'm lying uh, affect about it. And, you know, people were basically giggling when he would say things like, of course, we had nothing to do with it. And, you know, the main thing was that the facts had to come out of how you know, dirty and corrupt the U.S. political system is. So what we're dealing with in many cases, and I think this, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude on this point, including the most recent attack on this former Russian double agent in the U.K., is a level of, you know, desire to maintain plausible or even implausible deniability and basically force Western countries into trying to hold Russia accountable when the information that you would normally require, whether it's legal or a formal government uh, a statement of attribution, isn't always immediately available. So this has put everyone, I think, in a really awkward position where the Russians are more audacious, they take bigger risks, and then they're completely shameless about their ultimate authorship of this. But let me let me just follow that up and try to push you a little bit. I mean, so what to do i mean we there are sanctions there are some level of sanctions already on russia um you know and the response seems to go from uh the united states president donald trump inviting putin to the white house to talking about boycotting the world cup or uh uh banning russia from swift code compliance uh tightening up our you know, the money laundering laws in the united states so that and in the uk so that they're not able to uh invest in real estate on in an anonymous fashion i mean i it just seems to be everything and everything is being thrown against the wall from being nice to being not nice. Um, well, and what, right. I what's think being, the answer? Being nice, being nice don't work. We kind of get that part. That you know, And I feel that you know, the, the Trump stance, which is let bygones be bygones, or hey, why don't you come over and have a beer at the White House, you know, in this, this most recent phone call with Putin, like, that's just on its face completely uh, you know, diplomatic malpractice and, and amateur hour at, at its most extreme. What we don't know, and I think you're putting your finger on this, is like, what's the formula both to deter Russia, to show that there's no business as usual, and then potentially to get them to change their behavior and stop doing things that we find so problematic. And unfortunately, there is no magic formula out there. After the Ukraine conflict erupted, there was unprecedented unity between the United States and the EU, and they enacted a series of sanctions against both high net worth kind of people close to Putin, but also uh, important integral parts of the Russian economy, named mostly in the form of energy or state-owned uh, corporations. So the problem is we're now four years into that effort, and the unity that was created no longer exists, both because of the Trump factor, where he's you know alienated significant swath of our European partners, but also because both uh, anglo Merkel's standing inside the EU has changed, the UK is leaving the EU, and there's new fissures that the Russians have been exposed, uh, have been really, I think, carefully exploiting and manufacturing by, you know, building bridges to certain smaller countries uh, inside the EU that, that can help kind of undermine consensus. So we're dealing with a much more complex environment. And the fundamental premise of the sanctions program back in 2014 was largely focused on let's do things that hurt them more than that hurt us and that don't cause damage on a systemic basis to the international economy or to the health of certain national economies. And so that's where, you know, if you do things and you start tinkering around and you basically said, we're going to treat, you know, let's just say for argument's sake tomorrow, 
uh, we're going to treat Russia like North Korea, what are the, the sort of second order and third order effects of those kinds of moves? And would that ultimately cause significant instability in the in the global economy. So when people have looked at that issue in the past, they've generally gotten wary of doing too much because A, they think it could end up causing a cascade of problems that the West isn't really equipped to deal with, but also it wouldn't necessarily make things any more stable or easy. So if, you know, for example, you pushed Russia and its economy into a tailspin, in many ways that might also be more damaging or destabilizing than what we're dealing with today. Um, so if we had a Russia where suddenly the state is in a you know deep you know nosedive um, and the economy is in a deep nosedive, would that make Russia's neighbors more insecure? Would it cause ripple effects that you can't control? So those are the kinds of, I think, uh, tightropes that Western policymakers have been on for the better part of four years now. Um, and unfortunately, we're in a worse place today than we were in 2014 when the war in Ukraine started. I have two last questions for you, Andrew. The first is, is the, the mutual expulsion of diplomats uh, just grandstanding for domestic purposes, or is this a new page in the playbook of US and Russia relations, or the Russia and the West? And the final question, obviously, is are we overestimating Russia? Sure. So on the first one, I mean, there was, you know, I think this unbelievable, uh, horrific attack on this, this, this former intelligence officer and his and his kid, um, and there needed to be a response. And typically, you know, in terms of the standard playbook, when intelligence services do something that's really beyond the pale, the, the main way you have to go after them are either clandestinely in ways we typically don't learn about, or you try to hurt their presence in your society. And so I think what was novel and I think sent a great message of unity was the fact that all of these different countries united to expel Russian intelligence operatives simultaneously. Um, the part that's sort of missing, and I think where we're all kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop, is will there be sanctions? Will there be other measures that are taken to choke off, say, dirty Russian money from going into the UK, coming into the United States, or other major economies around the world? And that's, you know, I think as I was just saying a second ago, that's going to be a pretty tall order. It would be great if it happens, but but there are some huge challenges to actually implement those kinds of measures. In terms of are we overstating all of this, I think there is a danger of making Russia look like it's 10 feet tall or pretending that the problems we're confronting wouldn't exist but for this bad man in the Kremlin and his, his cohort. And I think there's a tendency in the way, especially these issues are talked about politically in the United States and other parts of the world, is to basically say that, you know, there is this, uh, you know, single bad guy in the world. And, you know, if, you know, we deal with him, we'll somehow not have to deal with the problem of populism, we'll not have to deal with the problem of you know the, the breakdown in the Western community that's occurred over the last 15 years or so. So I think that that would be a big big mistake. And then the final part, which I think you know we also need to focus on, is that if you were to get kind of too casual and basically just say, well, what we need is a new Cold War, and you know we need to basically dust off the same exact playbook we used in the post 1945 period. In some ways, you're handing Putin a huge political gift if you do that, for the, for the reasons we talked about a few minutes ago. The more that it looks like the West is squaring off against Russia, all of Russia, every Russian citizen, the more you're allowing the Putin regime to mobilize and go onto a war footing that will keep it in power indefinitely. So I think it's really incumbent on Western policymakers to do what they can to both keep the door open to some form of engagement, interaction with the Russian people, some parts of the Russian government and the Russian establishment, 
um, but also to make sure that we don't basically just try to make Russia an enemy where, you know, that's that's a that's a, a potentially, I think, short sighted move where, frankly, we don't have the, the heart or the, the the impetus right now in our society to sort of put Russia as our you know, preeminent national security challenge of our day. I think there are probably other problems out there that are going to take precedence uh, rightfully, you know, whether it's dealing with the rise of China, dealing with um non-state actors dealing with the threat of global terrorism, dealing with the instability in the Middle East, dealing with sweeping technological changes. Those are sort of big, big ticket foreign policy issues at the moment where, you know, it'd be good to see the United States and our partners dealing with them. Um, if, you know, if, if all we're going to do is play whack-a-mole with the Russians, I think, you know, we're going to be, uh, we're going to be in this game and it's probably going to be a pretty unsatisfying outcome. Andrew Weiss, thank you very much for joining us on Altamar today. Fascinating discussion. Thank you both. Really great to be here. So, Mooney, I think we're supposed to conclude here, and I guess where we should conclude is where do we stand on the central question of whether we're overestimating Russia and Putin or not? I don't know, Peter. It's hard to say, but I think we're giving Russia far too much credit in this recent election meddling in the U.S., for instance. Donald Trump won because he ran a very, very targeted campaign, and Hillary ran a pretty terrible one and not because of Pizzagate or a bunch of Twitter trolls kind of manipulated by Russia. I'm sure Russia was, as uh, our guest has very explicitly said, was involved in trying to disrupt the U.S. election, but that is not the reason why Donald Trump is currently president. I think that we're giving this outside, outsized influence to Vladimir Putin in our U.S. politics. Well, I, let, let me just argue the other hand. I, I, I'm not so sure, Muni, because, you know, I certainly agree that the fissures in our society have existed before. And I, I think, you know, uh, Italians are angry at their state because their state has been unable to create an economy that sort of thrives and gives young people hope and for improvement in the future that makes living finding a living space in rome or milan or naples almost impossible for a newly married couple so there's a rage there that's incredible but that rage was not created by russians that rage was created by um by the inabilities to correct some fundamental inequalities and uh problems in our societies but what is i think really new is the fact that the russians are not only uh, willing to throw salt on those wounds and to open those fissures. I think that's old spy stuff. But what's new is that they're willing to go public with this stuff and then use it for political manipula manipulation. That, I think, is a new thing. And I think, you know, Andrew w was very good about pointing out that distinction. One thing is the old spy stuff and getting advantage and having the information, but actually using now the um, new social media platforms to actually manipulate political outcomes uh, is something something that's that's really new and I, I i guess the question here is how to respond and i i frankly you know if if um uh you know if the experts don't are puzzled by how to do this because as as we were told you know it's it's uh, everything is going to have consequences but there's got to be some type of strong response here and i i'm not sure what that is but there otherwise if there isn't a deterrent there is going to be this is going to grow and and become a festering problem 
uh, in our democracies. Peter, you mentioned old spy stuff. It's the same spy stuff with different tools. And I think that we run the risk of creating this outsize uh, Vladimir Putin figure that is uh, infecting Western democracy and meddling in Western elections. And I think that it's it's been like that for a very long time. What's changed now are the tools. And we have to be careful not to you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater and think that it's all the fault of social media. It's the same spy stuff, I believe. So I, I tell you what we're going to do. We're, we're, you know, I, we send this, Altamar sends this newsletter out. Um, uh, we're we're going to send it to everybody and we're going to ask everybody for their opinion. Should we boycott the World Cup? Should we uh, tighten up like the Europeans are proposing uh, control of the internet, strengthen privacy laws, assure anonymities, um, assure, uh, assure that you can't have an, an anonymity, um, and, you know, should we ban Russia from SWIFT code compliance uh, like we did with Iran? Um, so let, we're, we're going to ask people w- what they think specific sanctions ought to be. Because clearly there is a, uh, there's a, there's a debate here about how to respond. And um, there's already sanctions there uh, in place from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So... The question is, what's next? So stand by for our upcoming poll. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. And please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast of choice and leave a rating, a review, a comment, and what you really think about Russia. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>